On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about levies on your taxes and public transit. There is a committee of city council that is looking into how to break down who pays what for transit. Some suggestions say that those people in the rural parts of the city who don't pay very much now should have to pay a whole lot more to balance things out. Is that an idea that has legs that could actually happen? We'll talk about that one. We're also going to be chatting about the blockades. What would you do? If you were in charge, what would you do about all the blockades that are popping up now all over? Now, some of them are coming down, but what would you do to prevent this or to deal with this? And with the story that has been going on for the last few days about David Ayers, the goalie who had to fill in in the Maple Leafs game, well, there's another guy who used to play here, who once upon a time came very, 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 very close to sharing that same story. We are going to talk to him about his experience a number of years ago when he was one, I don't know, millisecond away from having to go in and play for the Leafs at Maple Leaf Gardens. We'll do all that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There was a meeting at City Hall earlier today, actually just wrapped up not that long ago, of the Transit Area Rating Review Subcommittee. Not the easiest subcommittee to remember the name of. Uh, This is a committee made up of three urban councillors, three rural councillors, split down the middle, and it deals with how do we pay for public transit, essentially. That is, who, who pays for public transit? How do we divide up the money of where your taxes come from to pay for private or to pay for public transit? And right now, there are different levy amounts depending on where you live in the city. And so one of the things that was on the agenda today to be discussed was how do we go forward with this? Who pays for public transit as we go forward? There were three options that were on the agenda today that were proposed. One of them is everyone pays the same no matter where you live in the city and no matter what your level of public transit service is, equality, everyone pays. Second option was 50% equality and the rest is sorted out differently, but that means rural areas will start to pay more, urban areas will start to pay less. And the third option is that rural areas continue to basically be exempt and the urban areas where the bulk of public transit exists will pay the way. Now, here's why this is going to be so contentious, no matter how it's decided. Those in the urban areas right now are paying about $400, $450 on average, while those in some parts of the rural areas are paying $130, give or take, in that area. And if you, uh, however, the folks in the downtown, the folks in the old city, not just the downtown, are taking something like 94.5% of the rides provided by the HSR. Those in Flamborough, on the other hand, 0.08% of the rides, not even a 10th of a percent. So they say, well, why would we pay equal for differing service? Let's bring in Councillor Chad Collins, Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins. He was one of the urban members on this. That's how he was defined in the committee anyway. I don't know if you define define yourself that way, Chad, (laughs) but that's how you're listed on this thing. You're one of the urban councillors. Thanks for doing Mm -hmm. this. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, This, you start looking at this situation with equality and public transit and the, the broader city and the mountain and the lower city and all that. This is a giant conundrum, isn't it? It is. It's a bit of a dog's breakfast, and it's and it's not easy, as you were trying to elaborate in your opening there. It's not an easy subject matter in terms of, uh, you know, trying to educate, whether it's new councillors or, or our residents, in terms of, you know, how it's worked historically, the numbers, which, you know, you, you're reading from the report there, and you're, you're very accurate in terms of your assessment. But, there, you know, as you go through the documents, it's, um, you know, we're dealing with 20 years plus worth of history, as was re- noted today, this goes back to prior to amalgamation. You know, we had a regional 
formula when we had regional government uh, that applied to area rating and some other services. And so the history behind this is fairly complex. And then, as you mentioned, you know, there's um, some very big uh, swings between tax bills as it relates to how transit has been applied to tax bills locally, whether you live in the old city of Hamilton or some of the former suburban communities. And then there's all the questions that the committee members asked today, including, you know, that we have a, a task force right now that's looking at what's next after LRT. There will be implement, implement uh, sorry, there will be implications there from that process. And then, of course, we have just the regular tax uh, bill that we deal with every year, and there are pressures there. And then we have a 10-year transit strategy, which is starting to expand service into the suburban communities. And so they will naturally see, as a result of those expansion uh, plans that we have uh, for the next five years, they'll start to see some changes on their tax bill just as a result of that, not not even touching the transit uh, area rating tax policies that we have currently. So it's a bit like Egyptian hieroglyphs. It's it's not easy to decipher and figure out, and um, it's not an easy process politically to deal with because, as you just mentioned and others have mentioned, any slight change in that formula creates a scenario of winners and losers. And we well, and, I, and and Chad, let me jump in because yep. I understand why people in the de- in the old city of Hamilton, what we'll call that, uh, would yep. want this to be changed. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it, I mean, you start now saying, okay, one of the, one of the proposals that is put in here where it becomes fully equitable would see those in Flamborough, an average home in Flamborough, seeing their taxes going up by three hundred and twenty-seven dollars a year. Stony mm-hmm. Creek, two hundred and fifty-five. Dundas, one hundred and sixty-seven. That's a that's a hard sell if you're going to yeah. turn to those people who don't have equal bus use or bus routes and say yep. you're going to pay the same or a lot more money than you are right now. Yeah, I think you opened with the key figure, and that is, you know, the vast majority of services with HSR are utilized by former City of Hamilton residents. And I think that's why we have adopted and maintained over a period of 20 years now, post-amalgamation, we've adopted that system because it seems fairly equitable. Those that have the service and use it are paying it. But as we continue to grow the city, and as we invest, make new investments in, in suburban areas, and we're seeing a lot of growth in Flamborough and Ancaster and elsewhere, there's been political pressure from certain groups in the community. And we had a delegation today that rhymed off, you know, almost a dozen organizations that say, you need to end this tomorrow, adopt one of the motions that are in the report, phase it in over time so people aren't hit tomorrow with a huge tax jump. And, you know, we're certainly cognizant that there's, there are groups out there that would like to see that happen tomorrow. Um, it's it's complex, and so we're we're trying to find ways and means in which to deal with it without just punting it to the next year or the next term of office, which has been done in the past. So we had a great discussion today. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting about the Transit Area Rating Review Subcommittee, which many of you will say, oh yeah, of course, the Transit Area Rating Review Subcommittee. Uh, This is the committee of council that is determining who is going to pay what percentage to fund public transit in this city. Chad Collins, Ward 5 Councillor, was on that committee. They had a meeting today about this. And Chad, just before the break, we mm-hmm. you were talking about the discussion. Was there a decision made today about which of the options was to be followed, or is this still in progress? Still in progress. And so we, we've asked, there, there are a number of outstanding issues that we still need to address. One is, you know, where does the task force go with the uh, provincial LRT? So is it the monies that were dedicated formerly to the LRT, that project obviously has been cancelled. They're now looking at other transit enhancements, and whatever they come up with, there will be an operational cost for the city. So we need to be cognizant of, you know, you mentioned affordability, or you you 
implied that there are affordability issues for people in the community here. And so any decision that we make around area rating of transit um, should take into account what the decision is by that task force and then subsequently where does the province go with that recommendation. So we're anxious to see what happens over the next um, month's time in terms of what they're going to recommend. We also need to know uh, from an assessment standpoint, MPAC is going through another round of assessment. There will be tax policy implications associated with their decision with we, you know, we've seen some wild swings in the city. Uh, the lower city is is catching up to some of the values that uh, we've seen in Ancaster, Flamborough, and Stony Creek. And so those tax implications need to be known uh, as we make our decision here with this committee task force. And, um, you know, I, I think we're trying to get at, Scott, just to allay some concerns for people who may live in the rural area. I don't, I don't think anyone's on for, um, you know, sticking them with a, a tax bill where they have actually absolutely no access to service. But I'll give you an anomaly that, that we're dealing with, and, it, and it's in my own area. I have now um, assumed a portion of the old city of Stony Creek, the downtown area, so Lake Avenue dissects my ward. It, um, I have the southern portion, which is in the old city of Stony Creek, and then I have the portion that's above Queenston that runs through Riverdale to Barton Street in the old city of Hamilton. So Lake dissects really two former uh, uh, communities from pre-amalgamation. For those people living in Stony Creek, and they have the same access to the buses, they're a stone's throw from Eastgate, um, they're paying about $128 on their tax bill. For those people that live north of Queenston on Lake Avenue, same street, they're paying $468. So those are the kind of the anomalies that we're right. looking at to say, you know, and these people are within walking distance of the same bus routes. They both have access probably to one of the best uh, transit hubs in the city, which is Eastgate. Um, you know, we have the B-Line service there. Who knows what's next for us in terms of the provincial investment? And so, you know, historically, we've seen a lot of time pass and a lot of growth in the city, and we have some of these anomalies, and I can point to it in different areas. The same will exist on the West Mountain, where we have, again, you look across the street, one neighbor's paying X, the other's paying Y, and they have same access to the bus. So how do we deal with that? And it really involves looking at maps, as was pre- uh, as was the case today, where staff present us with some options to say, here are some hybrid options that you can look at and i think the committee will will eventually look at you know those scenarios where we have these inequities in tax bills but same access to service so it's not really getting at farmers in the far reaches of flamborough and troy and saying you know i got to start paying for buses even though you don't have the service we don't do that for street lighting we have a separate charge for farmers for i think recreation as well and fire they have uh, volunteer fire departments and they're not cha- charged the same rate there so i i anticipate that this will continue to be an urban rule discussion, excluding the the rule. So then how do we then deal with those inequities in the urban area where there are some glaring issues that um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, and that and I mean I, that makes sense. Yeah. But if because because yeah. if you were to suddenly and I you know you may you guys ultimately may decide to do this, but if you were to go to the option that says everyone pays exactly the same, mm-hmm. you would I would expect by definition then have to provide vastly more bus service to some of those rural areas that probably wouldn't get used at all anyway. But it would have to be provided to be fair. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the case. And we know that in other municipalities across Ontario, there is an urban-rural split. So I think Ottawa still has that, and there may be some others. So um, in, in communities where you have an urban component and rural, usually there is that divide there. And I think, you know, I can't speak for my council colleagues, but I'm almost confident that everyone around the table still sees fit to keep that in place. So now we're focusing on the on the urban area, and there are some unknowns. And so we're, we've asked our staff to come back with some of those 
those uh, some of the information related to the provincial task force. Uh, what happens with our ten-year transit plan? We're now in uh, halfway through that plan, through a ten-year plan, and we continue to put a lot of new buses on the road. Um, we've, we're hiring a lot of new drivers, and so there will be implications there for the suburbs, as was noted today. Many of those new bus um, uh, routes and service hours are in the suburban communities, whether it's you know leading through to Ancaster or in the Rymel area of the growing Stony Creek Mountain area and Councillor Clark's area. So they will just by default start to see additional uh, charges on their tax bill because they're now getting more services as a result of our 10-year plan. So we've asked for the implications of seeing that plan through to its 10th year. What kind of changes will we see without even changing area rating? And so lots of questions today. A lot of information was asked for, and our staff will come back over the next couple of months with that, and we'll be able to make a, a more informed decision, but knowing that, that you know, it's, it's just not an easy situation to deal with because of some of the inequities and some of the cost shifts and, and tax shifts that you noted in your opening. Uh, Chad Collins, Ward 5 Council, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. Uh, just as a, uh, as a note, so you understand what the difference is in usage, according to numbers from the city, 2018 numbers, those in Upper and Lower Hamilton, Old City of Hamilton, 29,887,103 rides on HSR. Those in Flamborough, 24,474. It's going to be very difficult to tell the people in Flamborough they should be paying the same amount for public transit as the people in the Old City when the numbers are that disparate. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some breaking news. You heard it just on the the last news break we had there that the blockade on the rail tracks in Hamilton apparently is dispersing. Although there are other blockades that are now popping up. Apparently there's one in the Toronto area heading on the Milton line up there and across the country there are new blockades popping up. And I want to hear from you about what you would do about this. Because, well, let me tell you a little story. I learned this in grade nine history. Mr. Weintrager was my history teacher. We taught medieval history. And I learned about Ethelred the Unready. Have you ever heard of Ethelred the Unready? Anyone out there? He was a king of England back in uh, like 960s, 960 AD, give or take. And he became known as Ethelred the Unready, fairly or not, because when the Danish attacked the story goes, he was not ready to fight them off. His armies were not prepared. And what he did to try and get rid of the armies, the Danish armies that were invading his country, was to buy them off, paid them to leave. Leave us alone, we'll give you some money. Well, this was a terrific idea, except for one small problem. The Danes of those days realized as they left with their bounty, hey, if we attack again... He'll pay us off again. And then if we come back another time, he'll keep paying us off. As long as we keep doing this and inconveniencing him and threatening him, we'll get what we want. Ethelred didn't last very long after that. He ended up fleeing and uh, dying in, I don't know, the wilderness somewhere. Um, However, Ethelred the Unready's story, and it's a true story, seems to me to be applicable to what's going on right now in this country. Because we've got a situation where we are through whatever, whether you want to point to government inaction or police inaction or whatever, we now have a situation where it has been shown that we're not really going to do too much. Yeah, they moved in and cleared the one in Belleville eventually 
after days and days and days and days of inconveniencing people and ruining economics and stopping things from being transported on the rail lines. And now we've got roads in Caledonia being blocked and we have trains, commuter trains and others being stopped. We've shown in this country that we essentially now as a country are Ethelred the unready. We're not going to really do anything. So go ahead, make your blockade, do whatever you want. We're, we're going to just, we'll listen now. If you do this, you've got our ear. We're going to do whatever you want us to do, basically. We're not going to come down hard. We're not going to move in and, and do what we need to do to get you out of there. You're going to get what you want if you do stuff like this. Look, the Tech Mines Project didn't stop necessarily only because of the blockades, but that was part of it because they realized how difficult it was going to be to get anything done, whether it's blockades or other things. So I want to know what you would do. My answer and I feel no qualms about saying this. If I'm in charge of the police, I don't wait for the blockades to get established on the rail lines or wherever else. I don't wait for them to get dug in and get comfortable and get the, the minute somebody steps on train tracks, I'm moving in and arresting them. They're trespassing. Simple. It's not a difficult situ situation. We don't allow this to become what you let it become by standing back and then allowing it to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And yeah, you know what? I agree, I understand. I, I agree completely that my idea might lead to other protests. Well, you move in and you arrest those people if they trespass. If they're on train tracks, if they're on, if they're blocking public roads, if they are doing things that are essentially trespassing that the average person if doing this would be arrested, you move in and you do it before it gets established. And you show as a country that this is not something we're going to just let you do. We can't, I don't believe, as a country, sit back and just say, go ahead, stop our economy, inconvenience your friends and neighbors and other people from this country, do whatever you want. We're, we'll, we'll just sit back and let it happen because... Why? Because we don't want to upset someone? Because the reconciliation is going to be affected? Look, many, 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 look at the stats, look at the polls. Many Indigenous people want these pipelines. Many Indigenous people want this to happen because it's going to bring prosperity to their areas. So if you're saying, well, you know, it's going to ruin reconciliation, I'll tell you what, there are a lot of Indigenous people who say, no, ruining reconciliation is going to be not allowing us to have the opportunity to prosper because you're not going to let this happen on our land. We're ready to go. We want the money that's going to come in from business so we can build water treatment and we can build in, uh, infrastructure and we can do other things. We can have jobs. You're going you're gonna to make some people happy, but you're not... It's suddenly, Indigenous people do not speak as one person. They're not all of the same opinion. So the reconciliation, come on. What you've got here is a situation in my mind where you have actions that are against the law of the country and sitting back and doing nothing is just abdicating your role. You are becoming Ethelred the Unready, one of the weakest, worst, most ineffectual kings in all of history. His name, the unready, is should tell you all you need to know. Why are we replicating that? 905-645-3221, star 9900. You can agree, you can disagree. What would you do when these blockades pop up? I'd love to hear from you. We're going to take a break and come back and hear what you would do to solve these things. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. My my view is the minute somebody goes onto the railway tracks or blocks a road, you move in and don't let them get set up, don't let them get entrenched, and move them out then. No bullets, no violence. I mean, you may have to physically remove somebody, but with the least amount. Where I don't want to, I don't want to see a violent showdown. But I believe that if you move in immediately before things get too set up, you can probably have a good chance of clearing these things out peacefully or reasonably peacefully. Once everything is set up and more people are coming and more people are being, now you make it more complicated. But I want to hear what you would do. What do you do with these blockades? The other side is, I don't believe you can just stand back and let this go on and on because you are ensuring that this will continue to go on and on. By doing nothing and by showing you're going to listen, it's, it's almost in a way like negotiating with hostage takers. You don't do it because you don't want to encourage the behavior down the road. What would you do? Let me go first to Doris here today. Doris, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. What would you do with this? Well, first of all, you, you've, let's just do the situation that's existing right now. There's 20 or 24 bands that agree they wish the money, they've got the jobs coming to them, etc., and then you have the hereditary chiefs who say, oh, no, 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 you didn't consult us. The groups must get together and have one voice. And then once they've made their decision, they say, no one across this country holds anyone and tries to say that they're going to sit there and back us up. We know what we want done. Then we also have to look at the back we're all looking at this right now across the country. All these people, there's, some of them have got 50 people, 100 people. Where is the money coming from? The money is coming from somewhere. And there are organizations that are providing the funds for these people to be able to transport themselves by train, by buses, by planes, and have food and accommodations The money is being funneled in from organizations that, A, want to stop the oil and the gas being done in our country. Doris, I got so many calls lined up. I I I appreciate your call. (laughs) And I thank you. But it's a great point because here's the other thing, and I'll let you go. But the other point, and you make a great one, is that I don't believe that all the people who are on these protests and all these blockades are indigenous people. There are other interests that are involved in this. Doris, thanks for the call. There are other interests besides indigenous groups that are involved in this. So the reconciliation thing doesn't fully count. James, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm good. Listen, I really enjoyed hearing Doris's perspective, and she's pretty much right on the fact that the elected council has got to work with the hereditary chiefs on some type of agreement where there's respect back and forth, because every time there's a problem, it's from the hereditary chiefs who feel they didn't have a voice. The other problem, and I fully agree, it's the special interest groups. But you know what? It starts with our federal government. You know, Trudeau doesn't want to engage. He needs to engage. And then he needs to set the record straight with everyone once and for all. But And, you're, and James, not- let me jump in because I think you make a great point right off the top with the hereditary chiefs and the elected yeah. band council. If you don't know who you're negotiating with, you can't negotiate. I think Trudeau has to go to them and say, you come back to us with one voice, as Dora said and as you're saying, and we'll talk. But until then, it's impossible. Yeah, I do a lot of work with First Nations um, up in Hagersville, and I, I, I've spoken to both sides. And one side seems to be right on the money with respect to protecting their people, making economic development, reducing the hardships. And the other group, they just want to monopolize 
and keep pushing their agenda. James, I and appreciate the call. I got to run because I appreciate right, it, but thank care, you so Scott. much. I appreciate that. Let me go to Dan. Uh, to Dan. Dan, how are you? Good, thanks. Uh, I completely agree with you. I think uh, 30 years ago, these, these things would have been quashed right away. Uh, unfortunately, the political climate today is different, uh, and the police are kind of in a no-win situation, damned if you do, damned if you don't type of thing, because uh, everybody's worried and doesn't want to be the ones to make that decision. Um, but they don't want to make that decision because they remember things like Oka, where you end up with violence because you allowed this to build and stay and grow. If you get in there right away, I don't believe you have those problems. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, leaving it to go on uh, just emboldens those groups. And unfortunately, there's the media in certain ways is complicit in it, some, some media outlets, because they give too much airtime to these small interest groups. The, the vocal minority get too much airtime. Uh, and they should be talking to the people, the rest of the people like Barry now. Dan, I appreciate the call. Thanks so much. Got to go to Ted here. We're going to move along. Ted, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Thanks for taking my call. I, I think it's really important that um, when when these blockades start setting up, that they be dealt with quickly, and as, as you suggested. To the other gentleman's comment, um, you know, about the hereditary chiefs, or some of them, because it you know, the media is reporting not all of them are in disagreement, uh, you know, speaking with one voice. That would be great. But quite frankly, after, you know, years of going down the roads on any of these specific projects, that's not happening in the it's context yeah. of the short term. And for our federal government to sit back and say, hey, we're talking, we're negotiating with who? That's that's that becomes the big problem, Ted. And I, I got to I, I got to run. I appreciate your call. I wish we had more time, but I, I appreciate your call. That is the enormous problem. Who do you talk to? Who do you negotiate with? And that let's be fair. That's not a Justin Trudeau problem. This is a problem that has existed long before Justin Trudeau. But who do you talk to? And how do you negotiate if you don't know who you? If you've negotiated a deal with somebody and then someone else says no, that's not good. But back to the blockades, you just have to move. I think you have to move in right away. Don't let them get set up. And you want to know something? You make some arrests, especially of the people who are not indigenous. The people who are just there to create problems, and we know they're out there. We know they're out there. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. We're not sitting back and letting you dig in and have your fun. Just not. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Everybody by now knows the story of David Ayers. He's the guy who got thrust into the Leaf game because Carolina's two goalies got injured and he was, you've heard the story now, the Zamboni driver who was sitting in the stands and had to get dressed and came into the game and won the game for Carolina, humiliating the Maple Leafs in the process, but also turning himself into an international celebrity. And if you don't believe me, you just had to look anywhere in the media the last couple days. The guy is everywhere. He is everywhere. From sports shows to absolutely not sports shows, it doesn't matter. He was on with Stephen Colbert, and he was on the Today Show, and he was on British, I think the BBC had an interview with him. You cannot not find David Ayers on the air right now. And he's at the Carolina game tonight, being treated as a conquering hero. Well... This kind of thing is rare. Obviously, that's what makes his story so interesting, but it's not completely without precedent or close to it. My next guest knows something about this. Now, not exactly the same story, 
But the idea of someone who is not an NHL goalie being put into the spotlight, being put on the spot of maybe having to go into a game, it does happen once in a while. February 1st, 1992, my next guest, who was not an NHL goalie, became an NHL goalie for the Toronto Maple Leafs again. Uh, His name is Dave Schill. He joins me now. Dave, how are you tonight? Good. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing really well, thank you. Now, uh, just a little background. First of all, did you watch the game on Saturday? Yes, I did. And, uh, of course, my phone's going off. Everybody was texting me, right? Are you watching? Are you watching? My phone was going crazy, right? <laughs> and were, did the thought cross your mind that that could have been me? Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely brought back a lot of memories. You know, 28 years ago, uh, you know, I, I kind of probably had the same butterflies that he had walking down that hallway. Let's go back a little bit because uh, you, you, now you and he, you were both goalies. I would argue that you are a much more accomplished goalie than he was. <laughs> he, you know, he had played junior B. You'd played junior A. You played with the London Knights, the Toronto Marlboros, the Kitchener yep. Rangers. You actually played for the Hamilton Dukes for a few games. Yes, it did. Yeah. Was that the year that the Dukes were? I hate to ask you, but were so bad you had to give up your spot in the Memorial Cup? Yes, there is. <laughs> I've had a lot of stuff happen to me. There you go. Uh, okay, so that wasn't all your fault. I won't put the blame on you for that one. Um, but you were you were a goalie. I mean, you had you had played. Um, and during the '92 season, you graduated from junior hockey, and you're now playing in the Colonial Hockey League, right? That's correct. For those who don't know anything about the Colonial Hockey League, can you take a minute or so and explain what kind of league that was? It was pretty much like the East Coast League. Um, is the Colonial Hockey League came in to play that uh, that year. And uh, they were trying to do kind of what they were doing out in the East Coast Hockey League um, and affiliate with teams like uh, where I was in Brantford. They were affiliated with the uh, St. John's Maple Leafs, which is the affiliation of Toronto. Okay, now you were with the Brantford Smoke. This league, would it be an overstatement to say that in those early years, because this league eventually became the United Hockey League, and it's a respected league now. At, at those early days, though, uh, it, it, there were some similarities to Slapshot, Correct. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think they did a really good job. Actually, the hockey um, in the Colonial League, I found like I had just come from the East Coast, and uh, when I got to the Colonial League, I actually thought the hockey was better. It was just a new product; they were trying to sell it, and uh, it did get much better because they were able to sell it there. But um, it was just that at first, uh, it was this new league. But as far as as far as talent went, uh, talent went, I, I thought uh, a lot of good hockey players were playing in that at the, the time. It's just they weren't getting the fan support. There was talent, uh, I, and I, and part of the reason I bring this up is, I mean, you're a goalie. You were a goalie, and you're not a huge guy. I mean, you're you're not tiny, but you're not a huge guy. You had 36 penalty minutes for a goalie. That's a that, that's a hefty slate of penalty minutes in any league. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, maybe maybe I was like the goalie <laughs> for the Chiefs. <laughs> All right, so so you're playing you're playing for the Branford Smoke in the Colonial League. You are a distant relative of the Toronto Maple Leafs at this point. Uh, so on February 1st, or I guess it would have probably been the day before that, uh, you get a call, or how did you find out the Leafs wanted you? Yeah, Donnie Robinson at the time was our general manager. He uh, came out to me, and, and it had happened a few times before where I was going to go to St. John's and back up 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 there when they would have an injury or whatever, um, I would get sent to St. John's. And it was kind of the same old thing. Donnie came up to me and said, all right, uh, they, they need you to go to Halifax. Uh, Rick Wamsley died. Their uh, dad had passed away. And uh, they were going to fly Rhodes into uh, Toronto, and I was going to pass them in the air and fly out to uh, Halifax. They were playing in Halifax that night. And I got to the airport, and uh, while I was at the airport, uh, Bill Waters called me and said, you know what, I don't want you getting on that flight. You're going to have to hold off. We're having trouble getting Damien out of uh, Halifax right now. And he said, you're going to go on a later flight. 
Um, and if not, if we can't get him, then he goes, you're going to have to come down to the gardens and back up Grant here tonight. Okay, so a little bit of background here. So the Leafs at that time, and it's it, talk about a wealth of, uh, of riches or a, 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 an abundance of riches. They had Grant Fuhr, who was the, the starting goal, a future Hall of Famer. Felix Potvin was a young guy, but he was injured at that time. But we know Felix Potvin. Rick Walmsley, you mentioned, uh, he was in the system, but his father had died. Damian Rhodes, as you say, another guy who played for the Leafs a lot, um, was in on the farm team in St. John's. Uh, so, okay, so you're you're supposed to go, and then there's this, you're supposed to go out to the rock, and there's this snowstorm out there. So eventually, how long was it that you're sitting at the airport before you find out that they can't get Damien Rhodes to Toronto? Quite a while, because uh, I think the first flight went out at whatever, 10 o'clock in the morning, and then um, I think the next flight was like, I can't remember, I think it was like 3 o'clock or something, I'm doing the math on my fingers going, oh my God, like I'm going to get there, and it's going to be game time pretty much. You know, I'll be running in as uh, the guys are probably just going out on the ice. So I was kind of worried about that a little bit. Um, but then uh, he called me back, and, and Bill Waters just said, you know, this isn't going to work. You're going to have to go down to the gardens and, and back up tonight. So. <laughs> so did you drive to Maple Leaf Gardens? Yeah, yeah, I drove down there, and uh, they actually hand-sewed my uh, my name on the back of a jersey. Um, they didn't even have time to stitch it up. So, uh, yeah, I had the jersey, and, really, and uh, it was it was quite the experience. And, what you- uh, it was actually funny, because in the game, uh, Fuhr actually did get hurt. He he, uh, he did go down, and the trainer went out on the ice. So, so I, I, I know exactly how Dave uh, Ayers uh, felt, because I, th- I thought I was going in. And you know what? I didn't want to go in. I was just sitting there going, oh, please don't put me in. But I'll tell you, after all the stuff he's gotten to do, uh, I said, you know, it wouldn't have been too bad to go in there and get shelled. Don't <laughs> I, get- I can go on the Tonight Show. Well, when you first of all, let me go back. When you show up at Maple Leaf Gardens, now it's a little different than today's NHL arenas, even though it's only 28 years ago or so, but when you show up with your equipment and just walk in the door and say, yeah, I'm playing for the Leafs tonight, do the security people just let you right through, or what do you have to do to talk your way in? Yeah, I don't even remember how that worked. Um, to be honest with you, I had played with the Marty, so I kind of knew how the the whole door, like getting in the rink and everything, kind of worked. So, so that wasn't really an issue for me because I kind of knew which door the guys go in and stuff. And when we were with the Toronto Marty's, we did see the players coming in and stuff. So that kind of for me, that that wasn't really an issue. I guess uh, when I think back, uh, I, I I just I don't remember, but I I mean I don't remember ever having a problem getting in either. Did, were you when you get into the Leafs dressing room? Were you starstruck? I mean, there were some big name guys there then. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't. I wasn't because I, I had uh, I had the tryout with them that year too, right? So I, I had kind of met the the players and stuff. And, and with me being in St. John's, uh, there was a few guys there, like Pearson and guys like that that had been called up. So so I you know I kind of made my way to those two, those guys that I kind of knew from St. John's. And obviously, I was starstruck. You know, I saw Clark and. and um, and, and Gilmore and those kind of big names, and obviously you're starstruck, yeah. You go out, you get to go out there for the warm-up. Are, is it, as a goalie who hasn't played in that circumstance before, Do you, is it hard to not look around and see the size of the place and the people and everything else? Or is, are, can you concentrate on what you're supposed to be doing? Well, you're, you're more, you're, you, you know everyone's looking at you going, who is that guy? You know, and, 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 and my name is stitched on the back, and I, and I got the, actually it's funny, they took all the advertising off my pads, or they would have had to pay for it for the league, and, and so I got these pads there, you know, got no advertising on them, um, and, and I'm standing there, and people are obviously wondering, I got the Brantford Smoke uh, helmet, you know, and they're like, probably like, who is this guy? And of course, the, 
the goalie, the rule is the goalie that's not playing stays in the net until the last guy goes off the ice. So, so the, the starter will leave, you know, with five minutes left in the world, and, and I'm sitting out there staying in the net for these last two guys kind of thing. And I, I swear to God, those guys are just doing that just to play with me. <laughs> Did, what, were there was there time for anybody from your family to get there? Were, was anyone in the crowd? Yeah, yeah. They, 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 my dad, my dad was actually the one that had driven me with my mom, um, and. They had just driven me down to the airport kind of thing to drop me off when all this took place. So then um, Toronto said, hey, are your parents, they can, do they want to go to the game? So they set them up with tickets. So they thought it was great until Grant went down. And then I think uh, my mom probably ran out of the rink. <laughs> well, you you didn't take off. But uh, honestly, what were you thinking when he went down? Uh, honestly, I, I like I said, I, I, I really probably, from what I can remember, I really wanted him to get up. And I don't care if I went up and taped his leg better myself you know I, I wanted him to stay in the net but uh now that i like i see it now that i see you know, how the fans were cheering on the guy that you know stopped stopped the puck the other night i'm like oh that could have been fun man <laughs> well there i, think I wish i would have went in there is a picture online and i don't know if it's a screen grab i don't know if it's a photograph that someone took there is a picture of you sitting behind the players where the backup goalie was sitting. And I don't know if it was taken at the moment that Grant Fear was hurt because there is kind of a look of wide-eyed terror in oh, your no, face. I bet you it would have been a lot worse than that. I think I, think I was wide-eyed terror the whole game and, and then even worse when Grant went down. <laughs> Um, th- now, you, so you don't have to go in, which I suppose uh, ultimately was good, but maybe in retrospect it would have been a great thing to go in. I understand, though, that was not the end, that the players, they treated you pretty well considering you had to yeah. show up for them. Yeah, it was great. So then after the game, they, they called me in the office and they said, uh, can you stick around and do the morning skate in the room and then possibly go with us to Minnesota? We still don't know what's going on with Rhodes. And I'm like, of course, right? So so we stayed the night. Went, uh, did the morning skate, and then we flew out to uh, Minnesota, and the guys really took took to me. It was really, really fantastic. Kevin McClellan was amazing. He was just like, come sit with me, you know. And uh, and then when I got to the hotel, of course, I'm by myself, and, and then I get a knock on the door, and it's uh, Wendell Clark and uh, Gilmore, and they're like, come on, we're going out. And I'm like, all right. And they're like, just get a suit on, like dress up or whatever. And I'm like, okay, you guys are dressed in these Armani suits, and I got tip-top suit. Like, this is not going to look right. So... <laughs> So and then they took me out to a nice restaurant and then uh, they they actually picked up the tab and everything so it was really nice no. and then I didn't care I mean these they gave me a, they, the lease gave me a premium you know and I have and I'm thinking holy crap they gave me all this cash for for dinner and and, and um, I didn't even have to use it <laughs> no no rookie no rookie initiation dinner that night no no they were fantastic they, like I said they. Uh, Took me out and just made, made me feel so welcome. And then, and then uh, Damian did make it in, so he made it to the game. And then I got to sit up in the press box with Brian Bradley and eat chicken wings. It was fantastic. There you go. That's that's, that's the way to do it. Uh, did, now, uh, David Ayers got to keep his Carolina sweater. Do you have a Maple Leaf sweater with your name on it somewhere? Yeah, they actually what they did is they took the jersey and then they um, restitched it all for me and sent it to me. And uh, they actually sent the original name bar that's hand stitched as well. So yeah, they were they were great. Trying to trying to really. Uh, they they really treated me well, and I thought I had such a good experience. And uh, you know, I mean, it's something that I'll never forget, right? Where, where is the sweater now? It's uh, actually it's framed. It's in my it's in my basement. So you have I kids. Framed. You have kids now, right? 
Yeah. Have they heard this story? Do they understand why, oh, the, yeah. why the sweater is hanging there? I mean, it always comes up in the conversation when um, someone will come down into my basement, you know, and, and the, you know, there's my there's my name on the on the wall on a, on a sweater, and then there's a little picture in the corner of that. It's actually the front page of the uh, Toronto Star. The actual real photographs in the corner. So, so then of course, that's the first question: is what 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 is that picture? And then my daughter and my son will always tell them the story. So everyone thinks it's pretty cool. What did the players on the Brantford Smoke say when you came back to the team the, the next game? Did they give you the gears, or were they just sort of like, wow, way to go, Shill? Yeah, no, they were very supportive. Like, they were always supportive. It, it was a great team there, and, and even even just going to St. John's whenever I would go, they thought that was cool. You know, uh, I was having the opportunity. You know, um, Donnie Robertson, awesome. He would he would uh, call down the lease and, and make sure that uh, I was taken care of, and I, and I got my way down there, and and as soon as, you know, I got treated great down in St. John's. I mean, as soon as I get to the airport, you know, there's the people in there. And, and there's that uh, come from away. Like I, When people talk about that, I'm like, yeah, that's the way those people are. Because I remember getting off the airplane and having people just come right up to me saying, are you the goalie that's coming into town? And they would drive me to the rink and just fantastic. I mean, and then I'd come back and the guys, you know, I would talk about how great the people are in Newfoundland. And, and they just thought it was a cool experience for me even doing that. And then, of course, to do the trial thing, the guys just thought it was like, amazing, right? It is uh, It is a very cool story. It's, uh, as I say, in, in retrospect, too bad that you didn't get to uh, to tell the story of getting in there. But uh, who knows how that might have gone or not gone. So, you know, maybe best to leave it to the imagination. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, you know, it's, uh, it's probably better that it didn't happen. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, look, D- David Ayers, he could have given up 12 goals in that game, and then exactly. I don't and I don't know that anyone's having him down to Carolina and making a big deal about him if that happens, yeah, so you never exactly. know. Exactly, and you know, what I think for him, too, is he actually got the win because he let in those two goals, and then he ends up getting the win because uh, Carolina scored that. So it was kind of nice that he let in those two goals. Otherwise, he wouldn't have got the win, right? Well, I, so I will. Uh, I'll let you go, David Schill. Uh, I would have said Norton one time Hamilton Dukes goalie, but I guess we got to say one time Toronto Maple Leafs goalie. But it's a uh, <laughs> one time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dave, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Uh, got it. Take care. That is, uh, it's a fun story because this happens so seldom. It happens so seldom that someone who's not an NHL goalie even ends up on the bench and ends up that close to going in. And uh, again, some people will remember him from the Dukes. He played ten games for them back in 1989-1990, although most people will simply remember that team for being, well, you'll remember it, so bad. They were hosting the Memorial Cup that year, and the Dukes of Hamilton were so bad that year that they're the first team, I think, ever that had to give up their spot in the Memorial Cup because they weren't going to be competitive. We won't remember Dave Schill for that, though, for playing for the Leafs and for almost getting into a game and for almost that close from being the original David Ayers. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.